Hello and welcome to each and every one of you. We have a truly global uh, community gathered here today. People from Colombia, Italy, Australia, Russia, Canada, the United States, and more for this dialogue and public conversation with David Hooker, who is, of course, as many of you know, and I'll, I'll go into more detail in just a moment, um, just embedded with rich experience, professional experience and otherwise, um, and currently is the associate professor, professor of the practice of conflict transformation and peace building at the Kroc Institute for in International Peace Studies. Welcome. I'm your host, Molly Rowan Leach, and for the next hour, we get the lucky opportunity to have a really um, exploratory conversation, a real conversation with David about race, implicit bias, and restorative practice. And thank you um, to those of you that know how this room works. Um, for just making sure your mic stays muted, if you um, experience any feedback or, or hear that you might be on the call arriving, just make sure to press star six to mute yourself. I'm really looking forward also to including your questions and bringing this entire community as you wish into the conversation today. Again, the, the framing topic is race, implicit bias, and restorative practice. Um, Restorative Justice on the Rise was founded in 2011, and we are so excited to report that we've seen an exponential rise in global participation. And, you know, in many ways, it seems like now is the time more than ever to get connected, to speak of, of really key and important um, critical topics, and to learn how to go back into our communities to help our community, individual, and global transformation happen. So again, so grateful for David's time today and want to point your attention to the Restorative Justice on the Rise website where there's over 150 interviews with peace builders, uh, voices from all over the world in restorative practices and peace building. And those are also on iTunes. So um, they're free, Creative Commons, open source. And we just encourage you to check those out. Also, a quick shout out to the National Association for Community and Restorative Justice, which um, is upcoming hosting a national conference on restorative justice, which is in Denver in um, June of this year. And you can find out more about that at nacrj.org. I'd also like to give a shout out and a thanks to Impact Justice and Sujata Baliga for getting us connected with David and to the Zare Institute for Restorative Justice. Most of you probably are aware of Howard Zare and his work and his institute at Eastern Mennonite University is well worth checking out. Great articles, webinars, and up-to-date publications for the general public to check out. So without further ado, just would love to introduce you with David's bio, a little bit more about the breadth of his work, and then gonna welcome him into the room. Probably around quarter of the hour, we'll go into question and answers um, and comments period, but certainly if you have something that you'd like to add to the dialogue as we go, 
please simply press star 2 to raise your hand. You can also go to the web webcast page to um, submit a Q&A, meaning uh, submit a question on the back end um, that we can read for you. So warmly welcomed to do either or, whichever you're most comfortable with. So as I mentioned earlier, David is the Associate Professor of the Practice of Conflict Transformation and Peace Building at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. And he's worked with communities, governments, and international NGOs and civil society organizations on post-conflict community building, environment, environmental justice, and other issues of public policy and social justice. He has managed multi-party conflicts, conducted workshops, and consulted across the U.S. and around the world. He, was, he is also a lawyer who has represented the state of Georgia as an assistant attorney general. He has taught graduate courses in negotiation, mediation, conflict resolution, conflict analysis, trauma healing, and conflict transformation at Eastern Mennonite University. For five years, from 2010 to 2015, he was a senior fellow for community engagement strategies at the University of Georgia's J.W. Fanning Institute for Leadership Development. He is president and principal consultant of Counter Stories Consulting, LLC, where his work focuses on narrative alignment for civic, community, and faith leaders. He's a graduate of Morehouse College, in Atlanta, Georgia, the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Emory University School of Law, and Emory University's Candler School of Theology. He also, on top of all of that, earned his PhD from Tilburg University in the Netherlands. So, of course, without further ado, <laughs> with that impressive um, background that you come with, I know you have so much wisdom to share, so let's just dive in, David. Such a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. And I'm, I'm just wondering if you could start out with giving us kind of a sneak peek into um, sharing your, a little bit about yourself, share your story, um, what inspired your work today, and maybe perhaps a defining moment that you might have experienced that brought you to where you are now. Well, if I did the whole meandering um, without doing the whole thing, I think that my commitment has been since even about the eighth grade, really, my commitment has been to help people understand and be able to give name to the challenges that are in front of them and then to also understand how to draw from their own strengths and experiences in ways to meet those challenges. So I started working uh, with emotionally, physically, uh, differently abled people, both children and adults. Uh, that was my earliest passion. And it was a psychology major thinking I'm going to be a psychiatrist and was spending time working uh, studying first clinical psychology and working in an adult outpatient psychiatric clinic. And what I noticed was a lot of people really wanted help, but the way that mental health works is that, you know, a diagnosis for many <laughs> seemed like they had a fatal flaw in their character. 
And so a lot of people resisted that kind of help. So I wanted to find another way to help people address issues, particularly in families and communities, that didn't require kind of that first mark or blemish uh, as part of the entry into the process. And so I went off to learn mediation and loved it, kind of fell in love. So I'm doing mediation, and I, uh, doing mediation in uh, while I was in graduate school in Massachusetts, I was a residence director, and we did mediation in the dorms and things like this, and had the great fortune of being on campus when there was a race riot. It started off being a argument back and forth about baseball, the Mets and the Sox, but it turned really quickly with a little bit of alcohol, a lot of testosterone, and some frustration. It turned from Sox versus Mets to white versus black Puerto Rican, um, Cape Verdean, kind of that, those communities. And there was a lot of escalating tension. And the provost asked me if I and a couple of colleagues, the thing that we were doing in dormitories, uh, mediating, if we could do that for an entire campus. And that was my first exposure to kind of multi-party, racially and identity and formed violence-based conflict, and I realized that that was where my heart really was. And so I kind of signed myself out of the program, took the degrees that were available to me, signed myself out of the program, and went to Washington, D.C., seeking my fame and fortune as a mediator. And I've done a lot of public policy, multi-party kinds of disputes, environmental disputes, land-based disputes, other kinds of disputes that usually bring together multiple identity communities uh, around particular uh, policy issues. And was doing that for a while, um, decided to go to law school initially just to increase my uh, billing as a mediator, but um, got kind of distracted because I loved the theater of the courtroom, thought I would practice law, out practicing law, kind of loving the trial work and eventually uh, remembered why I went to law school, which was to just be able to manage more of these multi-party kinds of cases. I was managing senior facilitator for a three-year process, legal women voters sponsored, to deal with the storage and disposal of all the nuclear waste and materials in the country. And near the end of that process, someone from the League of Women Voters says, we like your work, we wonder if you'd be interested in going to Bosnia. Ah, I have no, I don't know anything about Bosnia. The kennel where I keep my dogs is closed on Monday. I'm a very fast study. If you give me the weekend and give me till Tuesday so I can do something with my dogs, I'm glad to go. And my life just shifted into kind of the international realm, and it has been running ever since. Um, a lot of uh, multi-party problem-solving, post-war, post-conflict, uh, community building, using principles of conflict transformation, restorative justice, peace-building and arts work. And somehow I crossed paths during that international work. I crossed paths with Ron Crable, with John Paul Lederach. And so when 9-11 happened and Eastern Mennonite was beginning there the development of the STAR program, Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience. Mm -hmm. 
that wasn't its initial name, but that's the name it has evolved to. I got connected to that, and then using that star uh, methodology or the star framework that connects restorative justice with trauma, trauma healing, human security, spirituality, um, was able to bring all of those together because all of those were areas that I had worked in, and that just allowed me to kind of hit the ground running and expand in a number of different areas. So there have been a few different inflection points, but those are some of the major ones throughout. Mm-hmm. Mm. You mentioned Bosnia. Um, was uh, that your first experience of international work in conflict transformation? It was. It was my first experience. Mm-hmm. And initially I was invited to help train the newly formed League of Women Voters of Bosnia-Herzegovina, Lega Jena Glacia of mm-hmm. uh, uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, in democratic processes, in how to do uh, policy, how to do policy conflict transformation, how to host debates and things like that, having been in a totalitarian regime forever, some of the things that we take for granted as democratic processes were unfamiliar to them. So that was the initial request, but when we got there and started learning what were going to be some of the continuing flashpoints, one of them was around restoring land, people who had been displaced during various Mm -hmm. iterations of the violence and wanting to come back home, how do you set up land-based dispute resolution centers that would allow them to resolve those questions without resorting to violence, particularly right after a violent time. There's a lot of likelihood that smaller and larger violences and identity-based violences can reemerge. And so setting up uh, land dispute mediation centers throughout um, Bosnia and Croatia. Mm. And while we're on the topic of, of, you know, that experience that you just shared, would you like to share with us some other areas that, that you want to pinpoint around um, international work and maybe even any observations you have from the rearview mirror, um, perhaps about the the accomplishments or the successes that you've seen um, over the years since? Mm. I, I don't. You know, from time to time, there are things that you can feel like I can feel like I have had some contribution to, but it's never like my success. Like there are so many in Mm -hmm. in post-conflict settings, there are so many different activities going on that what you hope is that you've made some contribution in the Mm -hmm. post-election violence in Kenya, in uh, in training uh, the groups that were going to negotiate moving towards multi-party democracy in Myanmar, um, setting up the Institute for Peace Leadership and Governance in Zimbabwe at Africa University there, um, you know, working, doing leadership and peace building in South Sudan for the last 12 years. Uh, Any number of these were things where you hope that the part that you've done is some contribution to these much larger, extremely complex kinds of uh, context. And 
the mm-hmm. idea of success really gets minimized. What you hope is that when you're doing this work in these large, complex, systemic, multi-generational uh, contexts that uh, multi-generationally violent, you know, uh, repressive context, what you hope is that if you are fair to your intervention, fair to the evaluation of your intervention, that you've been able to offer some success or at least create a bulwark against the backsliding, right? Um, mm, and so mm-hmm. I think that there, are, in in many cases, that's the best you can hope to do. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, I should also say, I mean, I've done a lot of work in Mississippi, in Atlanta. You know, I've spent a little bit of time working with a brilliant community in Oakland of RJ and trauma healing folks out there, work in Greensboro with the Greensboro Counter Stories Project. Uh, and, in, and so I think international includes the United States. Like a lot of people when Absolutely. they say international, they, <laughs> they actually don't Thank put you. the United States on the map, but we have right. so much issues with peace and yes. multi-generational violence. So I should mention those, too, because I think that that's part of an international peace-building project. Well, I really appreciate you pointing that out and making that specific. Um, couldn't agree more. And um, I, while we were in the, the virtual green room, David, you shared with me something really significant about a current project that's upcoming, and I wondered if you would share that with us all. And also, to those of you just coming into this virtual conversation, welcome. Uh, Of course, we're with David Hooker, and we'll be wanting to hear from you in about a half an hour. We're going to open up for um, Q&A session. So um, you can submit your questions through the webcast Q&A tab, or if you'd like, you can ask them live by pressing star 2. So, um, David, give us a, the, an update on this project that you're about to embark on. So if, if none of you, if anybody in the audience has not yet been to Montgomery, Alabama, to the uh, lynching memorial site uh, that the Equal Justice Initiative has established, I want to encourage you to go. I want to urge you to go. It's a really important uh, project that, Uh, Brian Stevenson and his crew have done there. One part of that project, one part of the museum, is um, to collect soil samples from each place where we've documented a lynching, the 4,731 or so sites where there was a lynching in the United States. Uh, And so At the end of this month, March 29th, we begin a process in Fulton County, Atlanta, Georgia, um, to starting with a team at Georgia State University. I'm just there. They've invited me in for part of the conversation to make sure that we're incorporating restorative justice principles into the conversation. But they're beginning a process of collecting soil samples from the dozens of lynching sites in and around Atlanta. There was the 1910 race riot. There were, you know, a number of other occasions where throughout Fulton County uh, there were many people, many African Americans who were hung primarily for 
their success or their willingness to act like free and equal beings. That's almost always what it is that gets you lynched. That was what it was that got you lynched in the early 1900s. It's what got you lynched in the mid-1800s, and it's what will get you lynched today is acting as though you have equal stake and equal claim to the space that is supposed to be, you know, one of the more free and liberated lands in the, you know, on the planet. It will get you lynched, but we're going back to document and collect soil samples from each of those, um, each of the locations that we've identified. And so there will be a conversation and panel as we kick this off at Georgia State at the law school there on the 29th. Uh, on March 29th, and then beginning that weekend, you know, these processes will begin. So I'm excited about that. And if you have a lynching site in your part of the planet, particularly the United States, but other places as well, I'm sure, if you have a lynching site and you want to collect soil and contribute it to the museum, I'm certain that the Equal Justice Initiative would be delighted to help you convene the necessary parts of the community to get started on that. Because ultimately, after collecting the soil sites, we want to be able to place a plaque or a memorial, a commemoration of some sort at each one of those throughout the entire country so that as you travel through the countryside, you can notice where this kind of terror and violence has a history in making the land landscape what it is today. David, do you happen to know off the top of your head how people can immediately find out more about the panel and about what you just suggested in taking part in, in collecting soil samples? Is there a web, web page that's ready for, for public interaction? It is at, it's connected to the Georgia State Law School, and I don't I can't give you the exact address. Let me look at it while we're online. Let me see if I can find it, and then sure. I'll try and double back we'll and make, get that and for we'll you. Make, great. And we'll make sure that that goes out with with the podcast recording of today's conversation so um, to ensure people will get that. That's powerful. Thank you. Um, we love Brian Stevenson and all of his work and his team and – um, just really appreciate what you're doing deeply, more than words can say. Um, I'd like to come back to the framing tone and topic, um, interlinked topics, which are race, implicit bias, and restorative practice. And I'm curious if you'd share with us how you see those as linked um, how do they interlap, overlap, interconnect, and in what specific ways? Okay, so this is the first time, Molly, and you and I have only connected a little bit, so you don't know this about me, but I'm kind of, um, in some ways, I often cut against the grain. Um, Please do. <laughs> so one I think interesting connecting feature of race, implicit bias, and restorative practice is that each of those ideas is derivative in a way that allows it to be 
softer. It, it actually uh, disguises what's going on. So race is a fiction, uh, but we use race as a way, as almost a proxy uh, to describe what you know the field sisters would describe as race craft or what we've often understood as racism. But what we look at and we say, well, race is at work there, and race is never at work there because race is a fiction, and so race is no more at work there than Santa's elves or reindeer are. It's just not happening. What's happening is racism, but people get so offended and put off by raising the notion of racism and the possibility that there are races attached to it. And so race is actually a derivative concept. Implicit bias is also a way of, in some ways, it, 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 while it's present, and I believe every, all of us have these biases, there's a way of talking about them in ways that kind of make it derivative from the power that's at work and the agency that is available to address it. Because when we say it, and it's so soft, and I love some of the people who say it, and it's so receptive that we, we all have implicit biases. And so it actually almost diminishes in some way the agency that's required to uh, respond to the power that's embedded in our different identity narratives and the way that that power is structured and distributed throughout systems and cultures. And so we also we, we look at it and we talk about, you know, the need to address our implicit biases, but that's really just kind of a soft touch on our hearts. Um, and, and it really moves us away from looking at kind of the structural, cultural, the deep, the dirt work that has to be done to really reshape the power-based distribution of rights and opportunities and capabilities. And then restorative practice is also derivative in the sense that people stop fooling themselves about the idea of doing justice or being able to approach justice. And so we talk about restorative practices as an effort actually in some ways to distinguish it from or to, to some way move it away a little bit from restorative justice because we're really not doing justice in schools and in prisons and in some of the community work. It's not justice that's being done. We're using a certain inquiry model to uh, address uh, the, you know, what people's immediate needs are. So I think they are all, in that interesting way, they're, they're derivative. And so that's one connection. So mm -hmm. having put I that out, it. let's go Thank back. You. Let's, let's, let's go back and do the question that you actually were hoping I was going to respond to. How? <laughs> no, no I, was hoping, I was hoping for this to be a real conversation. So I'm really okay. grateful that you laid it out the way you did. And I'd love to unpack it for real. So okay. let's go for it. All right. Let's, let's do that. So um, race is fiction. Racism is very real. but And racism is embedded in our identity narratives. It's embedded in systems and structures in ways that, you know, so many people have commented and been able to uh, demonstrate that you can now have racism without racists. Uh, and so we we look for racism in one particular way 
like the personal animus and activity and, you know, the way that the courts have kind of defined it. But even that takes away uh, the ability to notice the systemic structural places where this category of race, this identity category of race is used as a mechanism for distributing rights, privileges, and testimonial authority, right? Um, and so it distributes it in ways such that as we embrace the narrative, as we come to understand who we are, as we position ourselves in particular categories, our identity narratives have embedded in them a particular understanding or framing of race. And so implicit bias is really kind of the thread woven through the various identity narratives as to how those position us related to these fictional categories of race. And so it looks at it as though it's just a thing that's out there. It's almost in the air. It's something that we breathe. And it really isn't. It's part of our identity. And you can you have multiple ways of performing your identities, and some of them are more harshly associated with a hierarchy based on how people look, uh, and which is race, right? A hierarchy of value based on how people look. And so um, that's where implicit bias comes in. It's in our, it's embedded in the various identity narrative categories, the, the narratives of the various identity categories that we operate in. What is challenging about that is that for the most part, and I'm really interested in hearing from uh, the from those who are gathered and convened this evening, for the most part, my experience is that restorative practices only go a certain they only travel a certain distance down the road in addressing the power dynamics that are embedded in systems and structures. And often that's the case because they are, the programs are tethered to the systems that are themselves organized around those hierarchies, those identity value hierarchies, and are organized with a certain, are organized and maintained with a certain level of power and the threat or the actuality of violence, right? And so school systems, you can do restorative practices in the school, but for the most part, if you're critiquing the school itself, the system itself, the derogatory way that people, that students are presented in the curriculum and the way that they are not represented either in, you know, administration or other decisions, the way, if you critique those things, then it's unlikely that you can continue to uh, stay and operate inside the school system. Same thing with prison. If, you can, if you're critiquing the prison industrial complex and it's wholly organized around violence and marginalization and oppression, you can't say that inside while you're trying to do and teach restorative practices because that creates the kind of uh, conflict that won't allow you to maintain your status. And so most restorative practices either don't or can't go far enough in identifying the true uh, 
power dynamics that are operating in the culture and context that are creating the kind of harm where people are acting out, often rationally, acting out in response to the harms that they're experiencing. And so that's where, you know, in trauma we would talk about those cycles of victimhood mm-hmm. and violence and people act in ways that are not irrational inside of their context but are unacceptable in order to maintain a certain order in the uh, in the context in which they are being asked to exist. It's what Laura Nader would say, she said, you know, 25, 30 years ago, these are the kind of programs where we're inviting people to trade justice for harmony. So getting to those power dynamics, getting getting really to the root, can you talk about that? Like where what 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 is what is needed for us to really go to the level that is, if I'm hearing you correctly, truly required instead of some kind of blended and reciprocating harm model. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can tell me, of course, if I'm not hearing you correctly, Um, but I'm hearing this this need for us to really go to a deeper level and that restorative practices, um, possibly as it were, um, are more of just a blended system of punitive justice of – can you help me out here? Well – so we've had this conversation. I've, ha- I've had this conversation in quiet spaces and some larger spaces among uh, colleagues and other acquaintances who are in the restorative field. I don't know if everybody is in restorative justice. You know, there's, there's a divergence, I think, in the field between those who are committed to reform and moderation and seeking to implement restorative practices to mitigate the otherwise harsh uh, harshness of the practices, particularly in school mm-hmm. systems where children are exposed to extremely racially divergent experiences of discipline um, in the school systems. And I think that you know colleagues who are in the school systems and are doing a really important work in mitigating the harshness of the systems are, you know, reforming and moderating and mitigating the systems, which is a very different impulse from the kind of dismantling of the system, the abolitionist impulse. And so it may be that because that work is necessary, like immediately, if I do it this way, if you can think of like Mari Dukin has that nested theory of conflict, right? So individuals sit inside of relationships, sit inside of organizations, sit inside of communities, nations, international kind of thing. But there's also the way that um, Lisa Shirk uh, and John Paul kind of modified it. We also think about uh, interventions that are, for for every conflict that's happening now, Many of them, every traumagenic source that's happening now, they have an immediate kind of uh, source, but they also have, many of them have sources that 
came from that emerged a decade ago, a generation ago, an era ago, an age ago, you know, 5, 10, 25, 50, 100 or more years. And as we're addressing those, we know that our responses have to also have some immediate impacts, but also be aligned with responses, not be in the same thing. Like you can't, the people who are doing the immediate response, who are doing the mitigation work, can't necessarily be themselves also doing the decade type change, the generational change, the era change, the, but they have to be in alignment, in, in collegium with people who are doing the other, who are working in those other temporal sequences so that we can recognize that there are ways to do the immediate work that contribute to the decade change. There are ways of doing the immediate work that change, that contribute to the generational change. And so I think that some of it is in aligning yourself with people who are doing, who are involved in those other strategies and recognizing that there is a deep culture change that has to happen. And so how do we mm. recreate a narrative? Like we have a narrative of, a historic narrative of disposability, particularly of black and brown body people who were originally and historically conceived, treated uh, as property. Uh, this isn't just a U.S.-based thing. This is a Canadian-based thing. I'm glad we've got some folks from Australia on the line because they've all had the same turn at cr creating either uh, a narrative of either disposability or wholly other that needs to be uh, excluded, needs to be eradicated, needs to be extirpated in order for civilization to emerge. But in any of those, in all of those, there is a narrative of disposability, um, which is why we can have such a large prison system, because if people didn't adopt and accept the narrative of disposability, we would be uh, just grief-stricken and also mortified mm -hmm. by the fact that we have all of these brilliant minds, able-bodied, you know, deep hearts, creative thinkers who we've locked away, we've marginalized, and we've limited their capacity to contribute to the full flourishing of the nation, right? But because, mm -hmm. so we have to shift that narrative. And so how do you shift that narrative in the moment? You have to do it in small, small spaces with each, with each restorative circle. With each restorative conference, you have to shift and mm -hmm. shift that narrative, and then it has to be aligned with people who are doing the decade level work to do abolition mm -hmm. and to do the kind of environmental mm -hmm. work that says that disposability uh, isn't an acceptable process. We can't; it, it's not sustainable. Disposability isn't sustainable in the environmental community, no more than it is in kind of the ecology of our life in our communities. And so how do you align with and cooperate with those folks? I love it. And I'm, I, it, it's interesting um, because it, my awareness as a host and um, I get a chance to hear from so many voices and practitioners and professionals and academ academics in this field is that, um, you know, there's a little ambiguity around what restorative justice is, what restorative practices are, um, and yet, you know, I, I'm sitting here 
um, feeling really thankful for the fact that what we call restorative justice also links in to some degree, um, if not a, a, a fuller degree, depending on the people holding it locally, individually, as you're saying, um, in free conflict, community building, in um, rearranging the environment of how we relate, how we share spaces together. And so I, I'm appreciative of that piece. Um, and it, it feels like we're in a really early stage here, at least in um, this country, of mm-hmm. of shifting what you're speaking so eloquently to. Um, gosh, I wish we had more than an hour to, sh- to share with you today um, towards shifting the narrative and going back to what what that that uh, social control power dynamic is, so that we can renegotiate our spaces very intimately, very locally and individually. Um, Molly, I know so, we're about to go to questions because we're right at that time. Let me, yeah. have, there is one, there's one other inflection point that I think is really important for me in how Please. I think about this whole process. So working Absolutely. with STAR, the Strategies for Trauma Awareness and Resilience, I had the opportunity, got invited to participate with a group that was beginning to emerged, they eventually became known as coming to the table, right, Uh, taking America beyond the legacy of enslavement. It was uh, descendants of former enslaved, descendants of former enslavers, and descendants of slave traders from the same plantation systems creating space for dialogue. And I was the director of research and training. I was developing a model, and the model um, is about connecting with history. It's his, the four parts of the model are history, healing, connection, and action, right? And, um, and I was talking, when I was writing the manual, I was talking, I kept saying narrative strategies, narrative strategies. And it was about three months before the time that Kellogg Foundation and Fetzer needed the manual that I realized that I had no idea what I was talking about because I had been saying narrative strategies, narrative strategies, narrative strategies, but what I really meant were those were story practices. And there's a huge difference between story and narrative. And that distinction is worth people who work in RJ understanding because often we say that we do our restorative practices, our circles, our conferences are narratively based, and they're generally not. They're story-based in that we listen to people's stories and we try to shift their stories. But if we don't understand the narratives that constrain and define those stories, the the larger narrative that they're trying to tell their story within that operates as a constraint, then you can't shift their lives. So the idea is to incorporate narrative practices hearing the stories but recognizing the places where cultural, societal, identity narratives are shaping the way that they un- that we each understand and view the world and make meaning. And there's, there's a huge distinction between story and narrative and master narrative, and I invite people to spend some time understanding those because I think that it will uh, enhance the strength of your practice even as you're trying to listen and hear people's stories. Mm. So, uh, Do you the, have the any resources was, that you could point to? 
on that so the, point? I mean, like easiest, books, articles, anything? The easiest resource is um, the Little Book of Transformative Community Conferencing, my, my little book, because what happened was I had to give the I had to give Fetzer and Catalog the manual, and I was like, no, 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 no. And so then I went off and I wrote my dissertation as a critique of my manual to say that hooker has no idea what he's talking about. He keeps saying narrative, narrative, narrative. <laughs> what he really means is story, and there's a there's much greater power in narrative. So there's a little book of transformative community conferencing that both makes the distinction between story and narrative and master narrative, but it also shows how to work with them in a transformative context, not necessarily restorative. One of the resistances to the whole languaging of restorative is, even though that's not necessarily what people are intending to, it feels like it's trying to return to a place. It's trying to, you know, get back to something. It's trying to make America great again, and that's not the intention of most restorative practitioners. And so the language is somewhat distracting in that regard. What we're trying to do is, unless they're really trying to restore order, trade justice for harmony, if that's in fact what you're trying to do is just restore order, then that's kind of a, uh, a deceptive use of the intention of the practice. But um, if you're trying to transform and not restore, but create a, a new context in which people can fully flourish, in which everybody can fully have experienced the full um, the full manifestation of their capabilities, then uh, then you really would benefit from being able to distinguish between story and narrative and master narrative and know how those show up in people's lives. If I may also add the appreciation of the term traumagenics. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe you coined that, and would you just yes. take a brief moment to give us a definition of that, and then hopefully people will venture out into their realm online or in their worlds and, and take a deeper dive with it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to go so, into Q&A. <laughs> perfect. Um, so yeah. I wanted to draw a distinction because often people think trauma is an event or trauma is a an experience, and it's and trauma is not the experience. Uh, an experience or an event, trauma, trauma happens when individuals, relationships, communities, when their capacity to respond to the stressors is overwhelmed, which means that three people can be experiencing the same context, conditions, experience, and one or more of them will not be overwhelmed. One or more of them will not be traumatized. They will not. So trauma is actually the performance, whatever happens in response to the experience of being overwhelmed. So we describe the conditions as either traumagenic, they are the source of trauma, or potentially traumagenic, they are the potential source of trauma, but not that the events themselves are the trauma because what you want to be able to respond to is the individual or communal performance which shows up as the reaction to the experience of being overwhelmed. And that's also really important because if you think about a lot of cultural trauma, cultural trauma happens 
for multiple generations, even when certain generations didn't actually experience the overwhelming conditions, but they have, they act, they perform, their thinking, their emotional, their meaning-making strategies all were formed in response to a historically traumagenic or culturally traumagenic circumstance. And so you can't deal with them in this kind of limited psychosocial exchange where what you're trying to do is reprogram them in relationship to a particular set of events or conditions. Uh, you miss the notion of where the trauma arose from. So it's really important to notice that the source of trauma, what is the trauma genesis, is uh, really important when trying to help people to construct a construct and live into a narrative, a preferred narrative of a future that doesn't, doesn't require that they be hindered by previous experiences of overwhelm. Mm. And I'm aware that there's quite a few videos on YouTube of you speaking to this subject. Do you have anything else you want to add around resources, again, um, that people might be able to find that you'd recommend on this subject of traumagenics? No, just if you go look at it, it'll yeah. out there. So the, um, the, uh, just to, the to... Transforming Historical Harms Manual, where, where, which came out of coming to the table, is where originally where we originally talk about it. But then I've talked about it in a number of other places since then. So great, and I do want to add that um, the soil sample project, uh, the Community Remembrance Project, that is. Um, anybody that, that wants to find that online, please go to eji.org backslash community-remembrance-project. So that's eji.org, Community Remembrance mm -hmm. Project. And then for more information about that panel, uh, I was not able to find any anything yet, but we'll make sure that we get that out to you. This recording will be sent out on, to you. It's on Friday. It's at the Auburn... Friday at 7 p.m., Friday, March 29th at 7 p.m., a reception beginning at 6 p.m., and it's at the Auburn Avenue Research Library in downtown Atlanta. Um, and it's a conversation about history, trauma, activism, and restorative justice. We'll be at the Auburn Avenue Research Library, which is on Auburn Avenue Northeast, downtown Atlanta, uh, at 7 p.m. on Friday, March mm. 29th. Great. We'll make sure to note that as well, David. Um, okay. So now we um, have a little bit of time left. Uh, would love to hear from you. And I know there's some webcast questions coming in. In order to do that, go to the webcast. If you have a question and haven't already submitted it, um, put it into the Q&A box and send it our way. Um, you can also press star 2 right now to get in a queue for asking your question live with us here. And we really warmly invite you to do so, um, to fill the community here of conversation that we're here to um, share with you. You're a part of this, and we're really grateful that you've been here today. Um, so I'll go ahead and start with a webcast question. Um, it's more of a comment, and I really appreciate um, Patrick from San Francisco for your um, your comment here. And he says, the soil samples to commemorate lynchings sounds akin to the stumbling blocks 
that are used in cobblestone streets in cities in Germany for addresses from which Jews and others were deported to concentration and or death camps. Are you familiar with this project? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, so I I think it's um th- thank you. So you're aware of the project. Did you want to comment any further on that in any like what, was there any inspiration uh from that project or any interlinking there? I think maybe that's what he was getting at. Right. And I, and, and I I I can't say for certain because you know this was uh an idea that emerged from the genius mind of Brian Stevenson and I don't you know I don't in any way claim to have been involved in the original construction of it I'm just glad to be some small part of it uh I imagine that there are that that is one of the mechanisms or one of the places that he studied when he was trying to look for ways to commemorate that there are any number of other Places that's certainly one where mm-hmm. where a society has been intentional about marking uh, the history of terror uh, and you know identity based supremacy narratives and marking those mm-hmm. for others to mm-hmm. kind of recognize. Uh, so I imagine it has some impact. And on that note, Patrick and others interested, if you're not already familiar with Growing a Global Heart, the late Dedon Gills and his partner and um, for, and wife, um, Belvie Rooks, had a project of tree planting um, in Selma and along the route, um, the slave route. So um, that's online, uh, Growing a Global Heart, powerful project, and it's still living on. So it's great to see that happening. Um, again, start to on your keypad if you'd like to ask a live question. Thanks for all the web questions coming in. Um, let's take another one. Uh, Pamela, thank you for your question. She would like like to know if you could explain reverse racism. And she adds, I hear black people saying that they're racist. My understanding of what racism is, I don't see how a black person can be racist. Are we confusing racism with prejudice when talking about black people being racist? Yeah, yes. Um I don't I don't get that whole idea of reverse racism. Racism is a context that's created in which there are a system of uh privileges, opportunities that are either positively distributed or denied based on uh the value assigned in this instance, in the instance of race, based on how people look, based on their coloration. In in a color-sensitive society, racism distributes values and power up and down based on how people people look. Um, So there is a power capacity. And while in in micro moments, a person of color may in fact have a small amount of, you know, or amount of power in a micro moment. They are a business owner. They are a, um, you know, they are a police officer or something like this, and they have the capacity to act through their prejudice in a way that impacts someone else. That individual level acting out of prejudice is very different from what we understand to be the full context of racism, and in fact, it may be a replication or an acting, the victim 
the cyclehood, the cycle of victimhood and violence acting inside of a larger context of racism. And so I'm with Pamela. I don't really get it when people say that there's this notion of reverse racism. That's not a thing. Um, prejudice, for sure. People have it all over the place, and sometimes it's a reasonable thing. If you've been in a society where um, you have been judged by people who look very differently and that judgment actually poses a threat of violence, then you may want to take the opportunity to prejudge uh, folks who look like they are going to create uh, you know, an experience of violence or degradation, you at least want to be sensitive to that as a possibility. That's what prejudice looks like, and it's not always, it's, it's very different from racism. Mm. So to come full circle, um, in the few minutes we have left, David, would you be willing to come back to how you were describing international as including the United States. I really appreciated you pinpointing that. Um, so how how do you see the United States honestly coming to terms with its own genocides, oppression, and enslavement? And then um, the final piece to that, what are a few key steps that we can all take to see and enact that web of mutuality that Dr. King, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, spoke so eloquently of? So this is the thing. I'm not sure that many people who, even people in the RJ community, um, are committed to relinquishing the privilege that they have that's associated with the current societal structure, which includes um, kind of a racially and engendered uh, distribution of values, privileges, opportunities, capabilities, testimonial authority. I'm not sure that everybody's willing to give that up. I think what a lot of people are hoping for is that they can retain their status and that the world can change around them. They can be who they are and that the world can change around them for the mm -hmm. better. And the truth is it's not going to change. An honest, an honest inquiry would require almost a collapsing of identities. Um, the thing that I'm working on now is uh, trying to articulate how we create, how we re reconstruct the idea of we the people because it didn't. The original we the people didn't include so many people. And um, identities have been formed based on that hierarchy and the permission to use violence, the cultural narratives to give permission to use violence against any of those who would rise up and move outside of that hierarchy. Uh, and so I think that we have to investigate and we have to have these deep conversations to allow us to reconstruct our identity, but we have to have, it's like um, on the show, like Property Brothers or something like this where you have a load-bearing wall. You have to have something to prop up the house. Otherwise, the entire house will collapse when you're trying to reconstruct it. One of the load-bearing walls right now in this society is race, racism, and the way that race, racialized categorizations are connected to capitalism. 
if we're willing to give up any one of those, racism, misogyny, capitalism, all of them will begin to collapse. And so we have to decide that we're interested in a truly new world order and then live through the pain and allow the chaos to, to come and then see what emerges out of that. But it's not, going, it's not certain what emerges out of it, but what is certain is if we're operating in a space where we need to know the answers, that we will preserve racialized categories and gender-based inequities in this society if we have to know the answers before we begin to change. So we have to get comfortable in a space of unknowing, in, in embracing the mystery that comes from the collapse of this current society. Mm. Well, it's really, truly been a pleasure. Um, I can't tell you how much I love this against the grain conversation. It's a needed one, um, critically. So thank you, David. Thank you so much for your time today. And to all of you um, that are with us, um, questions or not, thank you for your presence here with this conversation and at any part during this little mini-series that we're conducting of public dialogues around racism, implicit bias, and restorative justice. And David, um, really looking forward to seeing you again in the near future somewhere out there. Um, some of you might be interested in that panel if you're nearby or wanting to travel to it. Again, that's March 29th. And again, um, and lastly, that's EJI.org Community Remembrance Project. That's EJI.org backslash community dash remembrance dash project. This if been, nowhere else, I'll uh, see you in Denver. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And hope yeah. to see many of you in Denver, even um, if you're coming internationally. Hope to see you then. Thank you. And for those of you listening to this podcast, um, we really appreciate your support and your participation. Um, this will be posted within the next day. Um, on restorativejusticeontherise.org and also on iTunes where you can also um, sign up for a subscribe feed to get notices of new podcasts and interviews. Thank you, everyone, and have a great rest of your evening wherever you're calling in from. Um, blessings and peace. Thank you. Good night.